quiet while everyone is finding their seat. The only announcement we really have has to do with our schedule that uh, this Saturday morning, the men's prayer breakfast and the deacons meeting will be will take place in the men's prayer breakfast is at 7.30 in the deacons meeting as scheduled now. Got the wrong glasses on. The deacons meeting as scheduled now is for uh, 9 o'clock. There, that's better. Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we open God's word this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, enjoying our walk with him, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening because of your grace that you have revealed yourself to us. We understand who you are, and by understanding who you are as those who are created in your image and likeness, we understand who we are intended to be, and because of sin, we understand who we are. And because of your revelation, we understand your grace and your provision for us. Now, fathers, we focus tonight, we are reminded that there are folks who aren't here, some who are here regularly, who are facing significant medical challenges. We've been praying for them in prayer meeting, and we pray for them. We pray for uh, those who are facing possible uh, death soon, and we just place her in your hands, and that family in your hands, and Father, we continue to pray for them that you would strengthen and encourage them. And Father, we know that your word is a comfort to us. You are our rock in the midst of difficulty. Father, we pray for us here that those who need comfort will be comforted by your word. Those who will be strengthened will be strengthened by your word. Those who need to come to a greater understanding of the truth will do so. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1 because that's where we will spend most of our time reviewing some things from from uh, last week. I don't know, does the speaker sound a little different tonight? Sounds a little different to me. I don't know what it is. It sounds like I've got a little reverb behind me or the volume's up a little more, something like that. Anyway, tonight I'm focused on this concept of the sanctuary. The concept of the sanctuary as we come to understand worship 
in the new, in the scripture there's an emphasis on an external sanctuary in the old testament the it is the place where god dwells in that sanctuary and so that is a physical location in the old testament but in the church age we are the sanctuary god dwells within us and so that makes us a sanctuary and then there's a shift back as we get into the uh, millennial kingdom there is the uh, millennial temple and then following that there is no temple except for creation as we're as it's described in revelation chapter 22 so we're going to pull all of these things together because i think that's important for getting a biblical understanding of worship what does the bible teach about worship and often especially today singing seems to be and music seem to be a focal point when as one writer i read today pointed out that that is just a very very small part of what the bible talks about as as worship so with that I want to talk a little bit about a book that I started reading. I found out about this book last week. I'm not going to mention the book by name yet because I haven't read it all the way through. And what often happens when I do uh, mention a book is some people run right out and get it. And so I want to make, before I mention it, I want to uh, make sure it is something that I would recommend. But as I have been reading the opening chapters, it seems fairly sound, and it seems like the author is really setting up his topic very, very well. And as I've been reading uh, through this book, some of the things that he said at the opening, I wanted to bring up and just sort of give you a little pop quiz, see what you think about some of the things that he says in light of what we've been studying. That's important because... Uh, we have to learn to think and we have to learn to think critically and not just to sort of regurgitate whatever we, we hear. So in his introduction, he makes a statement regarding the conflict over worship. He says, people who follow a more contemporary pattern of worship often say that their method best appropriates who they are and is therefore more genuine. In the next sentence, he contrasts that with people who follow a more traditional pattern, and they will argue that their approach is more appropriate because it instills a more reverent position and perspective. So my question is, what do you think about those statements in light of what we've been studying? Anybody have any comments? Speak up a little bit, Betty. You know I can't hear you. What? Right, right. But notice he's not talking about his view. He's talking about these are the, he's describing the two camps, as it were. So do you think he's got an accurate summary of the two views or not? I think he's, I think he's nailed it. He said on the one side, there are people who think that what makes worship good or what it does for them. It's subjective. It um, uh, focuses on their feelings, their emotions, and makes them feel more 
close to God. And then on the other side, it said, he, I like the way he expressed this. They would claim, according to him, I think this is a, a correct presentation, it instills a more reverent position and perspective. And that's just not talking about music. It's talking about other things that make up a, a corporate worship setting. And so when he says that, what do you notice about the conservative side? It's still about me, isn't it? It's still about about me and not as much. And what I've pointed out as we've gone through our study is that this he's accurate in setting it up this way. I'm not critiquing him on that, but the way it is expressed so often is between two sides of really the same coin. And it's not talking about a, we don't start with the Bible. And so as he continues in his introduction, he says, the answer resides in defining two key presuppositions about where we derive our information. Okay, that is the assumptions that we bring to the table often unexamined. Those are our presuppositions. And how do we get our information? How do we define the, the values? Where do our values come where we say this is biblical worship, this is not biblical worship? They wouldn't even put it that way. This is worship or that's not worship. And he says the first foundational concept is that the starting point for all of our decisions must be the biblical text and its proper interpretation. Starts with the scripture. We don't define worship, God defines worship, and we have to truly understand it as it's revealed in scripture. And then he says the second indispensable conclusion is that proper communication of any practice and belief begins with accurate definitions. So we have to make sure we define our terms, and that is especially true in any kind of controversial area, whether you're talking about worship in the Bible or salvation in the Bible or whether you're talking about politics, whatever it is. I think it was Aristotle that said that that you can save a thousand words with just having correct definitions and making sure you're talking about the same thing. Now, he then writes... In a world where feelings and personal autonomy have become the norm, submission to biblical authority must be the basis and standard by which worship is rescued from the realm of temporal feelings and empty words to that of truth that can transform and renew both the individual and the church universal. So in this statement, he captures, very well said, that we live in a world where the criterion for many decisions is very subjective. It is all about me, what, how it makes me feel, the pleasure it brings me, the joy it feels me, whether I feel comfortable with it, all of these different things, and whether it validates what I like. And that becomes an ultimate criterion in many areas, especially when it comes to something as subjective uh, as music, but that really isn't the focal point. We need to think about the fact that there's little emphasis in Scripture on music and on hymns. There's what? Exodus, the Song of Miriam, Judges, Song of Deborah, 
1 Samuel 2, the Song of Hannah. There's a couple of other psalms that are in in, in Samuel. But, of course, that's when we hit this era of David, which is roughly 1,000 B.C. So how long has there been human beings worshiping God? Well, if creation is around 4,000, then you're talking 3,000 years without a real development of, of, of music. That doesn't mean it wasn't there, but as far as we know from biblical revelation, we don't know what that, uh, that was like. I think there was a lot of music, and I would base that on the fact that when we look at pagan worship, we'll talk a little bit about that later on, but we look at pagan worship throughout that era, it reflects a corrupted view of original biblical worship and music. A lot of the elements of worship are included in any kind of pagan worship. So he emphasizes this idea that that um, personal autonomy becomes the norm. It's what I like, what makes me feel good. It's all about me and not about what God what God says. And if going back to John 4, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, he says the time will come when we worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. Truth becomes normative. And as Jesus prays in John 17 to the Father, sanctify them by truth. Thy word is truth. We have a definition there that we can take to form our understanding of, of, of worship. And then that rescues it from subjectivity, the realm of temporal feelings, and empty words to that of truth. And it's the word of God, as Jesus also said about truth in his confrontation with the Pharisees, you will know the truth that is the word of God, and that is what sets us free from subjectivity and the enslavement of, of the sin nature. So then he goes on to say, one striking realization is that theology and worship are inextricably tied because the foundation of both is the question, who is our God? Now that's a profound statement because in our contemporary evangelical world, there is a dearth of doctrinal teaching. There's a dearth of biblical teaching of content coming out of the pulpit, of the pulpits in, in our nation. And people can come to many, many churches and never have their understanding of God challenged. As far as they're concerned, and this is true for Christians who, are, who think they're fairly mature and been around even good teaching churches a lot, we have a concept of God that often we project our ideas and our values and our feelings and our perception onto rather than letting the Bible completely define and structure that, that view. So theology looks at the question, who is God, and defining God, and the only way we come to understand that is going through the Scripture and that's at the essence of worship. When people are focusing on the Lord, it is who is that that we're on whom we are focusing. And we, we've looked at several passages such as Isaiah 6 in answering that question. So we have to answer that question. Both are focused on God. God then is a focal point of biblical worship. Now, 
that brings up the point, as he says in his introduction, that we need to define our terms. And he had a couple of quoted definitions in there, which I thought was interesting. I'd forgotten about this first one. This was in a book called uh, that came out in 1982, and he makes a comment that one of the first books I read uh, about worship came out in 82 and was this particular book, and that was probably one of the first complete books I studied and worked through on worship. And they gave this as a simple definition of worship, an active response to God whereby we declare his worth. And that was not an uncommon definition, if I remember, from how many solid conservative evangelicals defined worship. I remember one pastor that I, uh, I studied under for a while, and he would quote, as I have, that the English word worth comes from the old English word worth-ship, and it has to do with the worthiness, expressing the worthiness of God. And that's true, but it doesn't go very far. It doesn't, it's not a broad enough definition to incorporate most of what we see uh, in the Scripture. And in place of that definition, a couple of others that he quoted, he offers this one, which I thought was interesting. The relational phenomena. Now, that is sort of academic gobbledygook, but it basically, the better word that Alan Ross used in his definition, which I modified a little bit, is fellowship. Is that relationship with God, our fellowship with God. And too often we think in somewhat of a superficial way about our fellowship. We have jargon that we use that we're either in fellowship or out of fellowship and often we lose sight of the fact that the term fellowship emphasizes a participatory relationship okay there's a participation there's an enjoyment of that relationship we can think about adam and eve in the garden when they're first created that even though God is the creator God who is their teacher, their instructor, who's informing them, and they are the creature, there is an enjoyment, a richness, a blessing of that relationship with God. That is what was lost in the garden and what is progressively recovered through history until we get to the new heavens and the new earth. We have a positional fellowship in the church age and this positional fellowship is our right relationship with God for eternity that will will never change and then we have temporal fellowship where when we sin the enjoyment of the blessings of that relationship with God are are cut off and our rapport with God we are missing out on enjoying that walk with him every day it is a personal walk a personal relationship So it is not something that becomes uh, academic or depersonalized, neither is it an emotive, subjective feeling. So that's what he's expressing here with with this phrase, the relational phenomena between the the created and the creature. And I like that, and the creator rather, because what he's emphasizing there is that this man was created to have fellowship with God. Now, I want to talk about that phrase a minute because I'm not saying 
that man was created in order for God to have someone to have fellowship with. Okay, that's Allah. That's the Islamic God who is a solitary monotheist, a, a solitary deity who in eternity past has no one to love, no one to love him. He's neither the subject nor object of love, and therefore, if he creates, he does so in order to be to have an object of love, and therefore he is dependent upon his creatures to be loving. That makes him less than God by definition. And let me state it another way. If Allah is eternally love, then Allah is eternally frustrated because for eternity he doesn't have anyone to love. And therefore he must create in order to have an object for love to be who he is. That makes him dependent on his creature to, creature to love. So if he can't be loved for eternity without being dependent upon his creature to love, then he must then if he is eternal, he must not be love. And that's played out in the Quran and in the Hadith that you don't have expressions that relate to Allah as being a God of love, whereas throughout the Bible, there are hundreds of statements emphasizing that God is love. That is an essential part of his, of his attributes. So he creates man, though, uniquely. The angels are not created in his image and likeness. The animals are not created in his image and likeness. Only man is created in his image and likeness. And those words in the Hebrew have, are really loaded with meaning. But one of the senses there is that there is a counterpart uh, between God and man. The idea of being an image emphasizes the fact that there is a, that he is a representative of God so that man is created to be placed on this planet as a representative of God and as a vicegerent. Now, that's an important word. It's not the word vice-regent. That's a word often uh, misused and used in the wrong place because you have the R and the G there are switching, but a vice-regent is like a vice-president. The vice-president is the number two guy who, if something happens to the president, then the vice president step, steps in his place, like a chairman of the board and a vice chairman. If the chairman's not there, then the vice chairman takes his place. But a vice gerent is someone who is a representative of the, of the leader, of the suzerain, of the lord, of the master. And so that's the idea in the, in the Hebrew word and in, in um, Genesis chapter 1 is that, the, that man is created not as number two God, but to represent God to his creation, to rule over it in God's place. And so this emphasizes this creator-creature distinction but that man is a unique creature because he's in the image and likeness of God. He's designed to represent God, but also in the second term, the likeness, he is a finite representation of God in his immaterial makeup. 
so that in his intellectual capacities, in his volitional capacities, in his ability to create and design things and to volitionally to respond to God's love, he is a a counterpart to God so that he can freely uh, return that love for God and build and develop that relationship with God. He goes on to say in his definition, it's between the created and the creator, which find expression in both specific events. When God acts, man responds in gratitude, in thankfulness, in praise. Those are specific events. And lifestyle commitments. Now, what he means by that is, I think, can be expressed better as trusting God on a daily basis. That that communicates better. That's what that means. As we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, we learn to walk by faith, which is trusting God day in and day out. So that's what's meant by lifestyle commitments. On the next page, he has this as an expansion of that statement, which I thought also brought out some important things. He said, worship as a reaction, I'd use the word response, from people in a lower position, because one of the words for for worship is the uh, Hebrew word, which means to bow down, to prostrate oneself, to uh, submit oneself to someone in authority. So it somewhat emphasizes someone in a lower position uh, expressing that relationship to God who is in an exalted position through specific actions and expressions. Now, what are those specific actions and expressions? Well, right off the top of our head, we can think of serving God. We can think of sacrifice in a post-fall world. We think of sacrifice. We think of giving thanks. We think of being cleansed of sin. We think of uh, bringing sacrifices or an offering, something like that. So those are specific actions and expressions of what, what's that last phrase? A general worldview. And here he, he is countering both of those definitions he gave at the, at the front when he was expressing the two sides of the uh, of the of the battle for uh, the worship battles today, and he's pointing out that the real issue is worldview. That worldview impacts all of these other things, and you either have a biblical worldview or you don't have a biblical worldview. And even, and and so you have to understand these all of these different components that make up worship within a biblical worldview. So if you think about just some of the things I mentioned already. I talked about uh, serving God. I talked about uh, obedience to God, talked about uh, cleansing, talked about sacrifice, bringing sacrifices and offerings to God, Uh, mentioned uh, prayer, giving of thanks, singing hymns. All of those, which of those elements are not part of pagan worship? Which of those are not a part of pagan worship? They're all part of pagan worship. Because pagan worship is a corrupted deterioration of what was pristine in the Garden of Eden. So you can have those same actions. We're going to pray, we're going to 
uh, bring propitiatory sacrifices. We're going to uh, serve the deity. We're going to sing. We're going to have music. We're going to have all these things. And those were very much a part of Egyptian, ancient Egyptian worship, ancient Babylonian worship, ancient Greek worship. They were all there. It's the worldview. It's how it's understood. Is it theocentric based on biblical revelation? Or is it man-centered, anthropocentric, based on uh, one's own personal idea of what a god should be like and what he would want for worship? So he says, it makes a good statement there at the end. But I, I just thought I would bring those up because by thinking about them and hearing some other people bring out these points, it gives us something to think about. Because this is so controversial today, I mean, not in our church, but it is when you get out into the broader area of of Christianity, and there are very few people, as I keep saying, who have really thought deeply and profound. I've been thinking about this since the late 70s, and reading about it from a lot of different viewpoints and changing and modifying and maturing my understanding of these things each time I teach it. So that is crucial. So this was the working definition. I already changed a couple of terms today when I looked at it. It Basically, it's based on a definition that Al Ross gives in his book on uh, recalling the hope of glory, which is his book on worship. And he says that biblical worship, or well, he didn't say it this way. I've modified some of the terminology. He said, I would say biblical worship is a celebration. Now, we understand what a celebration means. We often think of a celebration as what we see on New Year's Eve, as having a big party, okay? And um, that's not necessarily what celebration means. A celebration can also be a memorial service when someone has died. And that's more serious, that's more sober. You don't have uh, party hats and all these other things going on, but it is a reminder, it's, it's very serious as you remember who that person is and their, and their life. So uh, the word celebration has, is, is an important word because that relates a lot to what public worship, worship is. It is uh, being reminded of God's grace and his favor and celebrating it through the singing of uh, songs that are biblically sound and also giving thanks to God and in some cases reading scripture publicly and in other cases maybe rehearsing creeds that are condensed doctrinal statements that give people the opportunity to reaffirm what it is that they believe in a public setting. It is a proclamation of the truth. So it's a celebration in being an eternal fellowship. That's that emphasis, that enjoying that walk with God, enjoying and developing that rapport with God, that rich personal relationship, which is part of a conscientious and conscious dependence upon him through life. Now, that doesn't happen right away. That is something we develop through 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years 
uh, of, of walking with the Lord. I'm going to tell you something because this individual who told me this isn't here and I don't want to embarrass him, but this is, this, you, all, you all were paid a great compliment uh, recently. There was a young man who's been here a few times and um, probably going to become a part of the congregation. But he made the observation to me, he said, I recognize that in contrast to the church I've been going to, which was a lot of young people, he said, I realize as I look around your congregation that most people are much older than I am, but they have something that I want when I get to their age. I thought, that's pretty insightful for a young person. They have been in the Word for 20, 30, 40 years, and they have a stability and a confidence in their relationship with God that is evident. And when I get to their age, I want that, and I'm not going to get it where I'm going to church. I thought that was a great compliment. And that shows a, a maturity in that level that you find very rarely today among people, anybody, older or younger people who go to a church. So the celebration being an eternal fellowship, developing that personal walk with a sovereign and holy triune God by means of, first of all, the reverent adoration and spontaneous praise of God's character and works. We come from more of a, what I would call a low church tradition. High church is like going down to uh, St. Martin's Episcopal Church, where there's a lot of ritual and formality. Uh, low church is much more informal, and uh, it's not a derogatory term. It just classifies different styles of worship. And often in a low church setting, the emphasis is on spontaneity in prayers and other things, which can be okay, but it also can be very shallow and superficial and not thought through. When we have a God who represents uh, himself as orderly, organized, and thinks through completely everything that he creates, then we should imitate that. But what happens is you have a lot of denominations, and I've talked about this in my prayer series from many years ago, that have well-written prayers, but in those denominations, what happens is they become perfunctory. They're just recited. They're not explained. They're wonderful. They're beautiful. If you have a good doctrinal framework, a biblical understanding, then they make sense. But if you're not taught those things, and that's what happens in, in a lot of churches with, with high liturgy, is um, we've all heard the phrase uh, to have ritual without reality. That's not the most precise way to express that because a lot of people who go through those rituals have a reality. What they have is ritual without understanding, without explanation. So you go, and, and recently, in the last three or four months, I went to uh, an Episcopal church funeral and they read through all the liturgy. Most people there are just reading words, and there's never an explanation of what these things meant, where they came from the, from the Bible, why they say those things. And so it just becomes words that really have no significance for people because 
they don't understand it. There's been no teaching or explanation on those things. So spontaneity can be good, but it can also be uh, not so good. Second, the express commitment of trust and obedience. See, I think that's what in the, the other definition that we looked at is expressed in that idea of a lifestyle of commitment. Well, I'm not going to go back and find that slide. I'll just skip it. But that's what he was talking about. A lifestyle of commitment is really... Mm-hmm go through this is really what Ross clearly articulates better and I clarified it a little bit as a commitment of trust and obedience trust and obey as the hymn says trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey that just summarizes the Christian life it's the faith rest drill to trust God and to do what he says to do think what he says to think And then third, the remembrance of God's gracious work of salvation and spiritual growth through divinely prescribed ordinances. So we have the Lord's table and baptism. And all of this not only looks back to what God has done, but anticipates the fulfillment of his prophecies in the future. So as we're going through this study, which has turned into something quite quite a bit lengthier and larger than I anticipated, but there's just a tremendous amount that I'm learning and studying in this, and it all is leading us back to understanding First, Corinthians, First Chronicles 15. Why does David develop all of this pomp and circumstance and these choirs and this music when he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem? And what is the significance of that when as a background to understanding uh, understanding church age worship. And so the question that may come up from some people is why do we study Old Testament worship? Why is that so important? And unfortunately, in a lot of churches today, pastors rarely talk about anything in the Old Testament other than Uh, maybe the Psalms, maybe Old Testament prophecies about Jesus related to Christmas or the resurrection at, uh, at Easter, something like that. But they don't give people a framework for understanding the Old Testament, whereas everybody who heard Jesus when he came and had three years of ministry most of them had a lot of the Old Testament memorized, and when Jesus mentioned certain phrases or certain ideas, they are immediately categorizing that, and they can think of an entire chapter right off the bat and understand what he's talking about. And we have people who, they read these things, they have no frame of reference in the Old Testament, so they completely misinterpret what is going on. So <clears throat> here's a quote from an author named James Muhlenberg in his book, The Way of Israel, who says this about Old Testament worship. It is not a flight into the dim unknown. What is that? We have a word for that. What is that? Mysticism. You don't know what it is. You just want to have this encounter with the other. You know, transcendentalism would fit into that category. It's not a flight into the dim unknown to timelessness, 
you know, Buddhist nirvana, uh, or to a presence that disturbs and elates one in ecstasy, where you just have sort of this existential encounter with the numinous. That is often what people think. Now they become spiritual. And you hear that word spiritual has taken on a whole new meaning throughout a lot of our culture because so-and-so emphasizes their spiritual life. Well, most of the time they're just navel-gazing and, and giving rise to their own self-absorbed fantasies. So he says that's not what biblical worship is in the Old Testament. It's totally different. These things characterized the worship of the pagans, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the uh, Babylonians, the Hittites, he says, what we see in the Old Testament, and I love the way he put this, it's a holy meeting. That means it's a one-of-a-kind, unique meeting in which God grants forgiveness, comfort, and guidance, and where the worshiper responds in praise, often reciting God's great redemptive acts. The only thing that he leaves out of that is the proclamation of God's word and those, and that may be what he's referring to by reciting God's great redemptive acts. It's proclaiming them. What is one of the, what is the first or second thing actually that we see Abraham doing in Genesis chapter 12? God calls him, tells him to go or to go to a land he's going to prom, promise him, uh, land that he's going, pr promises to give him. And he goes first to Haran. He doesn't completely obey God. And then after his father dies, then he goes to the promised land. And what is the first thing he does? He goes to Shechem, to Shechem. And what does he do there? He builds an altar. And then what does he do? He calls on the name of the Lord. What does that mean? It means that he is proclaiming the God that he worships. He is calling upon God's name and he's worshiping him and he is declaring what God has done for him. And basically by doing that, he is a public witness and testimony to the unique God that he is worshiping. Now, when we come into 1 Corinthians 15 and we talk about why is the study of God so important, the first reason is that because we're studying David's response to the ark and the presence of God with the ark, because the ark, the top of the ark is the cherubim, the Psalms talk about God being enthroned above the cherubim, and that this is his, represents his earthly throne. So when the ark is in the Holy of Holies, there is this connection between the earthly throne of God on the Ark of the Covenant and heaven. And can anybody go in there? No, only the high priest once a year. So it, but as the Ark is brought into Jerusalem, David is going to move corporate worship into a totally new realm with the development of these Levitical choirs and orchestras and all of the priestly guilds and everything that gets uh, developed, he lays out the blueprint for that before he dies because God has not allowed him to be the one to build the temple and Solomon is the one who executes it 
when he becomes king. And I, I grabbed these two pictures because in contrast to some of the pictures that we have of David bringing the ark into Jerusalem, these represent the the tremendous pomp and circumstance and majesty of what is going on. This is elevated if you watched, um, if you have watched the the Crown series on PBS, and you can get it on. Uh, Netflix and other things, which is a sort of a bio epic of of the um, uh, of Elizabeth II's reign, and you see the pictures, or you go back and you see newsreels of her coronation, or if you watched the uh, uh, one of the royal weddings, and you see all of that pomp and circumstance. This is the level that that David rises to and what he develops at that time when they bring in the ark. Now, this is unique and distinct because this is the presence of God. This isn't what would be experienced in uh, if there were local sanctuaries, and we have discovered some archaeologically out in the uh, highways and byways of smaller towns far away from Jerusalem. They didn't have everything to develop this, but this was where God placed his dwelling, was there in the temple. So this, these pictures depict that, uh, that mentality, the elevation and the respect and the reverence for God. Then the second reason we look at a study of Old Testament worship is because the themes of worship that we find in New Testament worship are all developed from Genesis 2. After when God creates Adam and then the woman and places them in the garden, these themes start at that point. And so you have an emphasis on the sanctuary of God, the place where God dwells. It is a holy place. The word for sanctuary in Hebrew is the word mikdosh from the Hebrew word kadash. It's M-Q-D-S-H, mikdosh. And when you, that's the participial form and the noun is kadash, which means to be holy, to be set apart, to be unique or distinct or one of a kind. And that's the sanctuary. It is a distinct localized place for the dwelling of God The sanctuary today is each individual believer's body. The sanctuary, you have separation from God and the need for sacrifice. You have the emphasis on substitutionary sacrifice, the need for cleansing from sin to come into the presence of God. And in organized worship, you see that it includes prayer and thanksgiving, the singing of hymns, praise to God, seasonal rites of worship at the holy days and then the priestly servants of God. You have this all of those elements today in, in, in a local church. But we have to understand that in terms of how they are distinctly represented within the, the church age dispensation. Now, in the previous lesson we started to examine the majesty and power of God as a creator and express through his creation. That fits that emphasis on understanding who God is and his majesty and his importance, his glory, his significance. 
and how that's expressed as creation. So I spent the last lesson talking about God as creator and the significance of that through the Old Testament. Now, from this, what we want to do is move through the development of God's creation from the perfection of Eden to pass the fall into the antediluvian period and into the period leading up to the revelation of, of the tabernacle on Mount Sinai and then beyond that. We're not going to get bogged down in that. We can, we've taught a lot about that, so we just need to put it together in terms of understanding how all of that, all of that relates. And then as we do this, we'll examine the, a key teaching or theme of Scripture which traces the dwelling of God in his creation to understand what it means that the Holy Spirit dwells inside you that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit means that to properly appreciate that and understand it you have to understand this progression in the Old Testament otherwise you're just hearing that the Holy Spirit is in you but it's hanging on nothing we have to have this background, and what it does is it opens things up to where we understand the significance of what's happening in the church age, but what we understand even more is there's going to be this future dwelling of God on the earth in the millennial temple that takes us to another level before we get to the new heavens and new earth. When I was gone in Israel... One of the things that Ray Mondragon taught as he went through uh, the, the history of man from a Jewish perspective based on the Abrahamic covenant was the emphasis that, it's, that, that often we get the idea that the ultimate in the dispensations is the church age. But he pointed out the church age isn't called the fullness of time. It's the millennial kingdom that's the fullness of time. That is what everything is ultimately pointing to. And so we understand where we fit on that, on that timeline and on the progression of God restoring paradise, as I pointed out uh, the last time. So we have to understand this within its framework to give us a fuller understanding of this. Now, in the Old Testament, we start in Exodus as a sort of as a turning point, as a linchpin, as a fulcrum. In Exodus 25, 8, and 9, God is going to bring instruct he gives instruction to, to to Moses to build a sanctuary where he will dwell. This is the first time that God has dwelt on the earth since its dis, the destruction of Eden that happened with the flood. And so in Exodus 25, 8 and 9, God says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that's that word mikdosh, a holy place or a distinct place where I dwell, that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle. The word tabernacle uh, is the word um, mishkan from the Hebrew word shikan, meaning a dwelling place. So it's the pattern of the dwelling place, pattern of all of its furnishing, just so you shall make it. Well, this pattern means that there is a, there, there's an archetype of what is Moses is building. There is something it's patterned after. 
That is the heavenly temple. Now, how do we know that? We know that because of what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 8.1. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister, this is referring to Jesus, the high priest, that he is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So there is a heavenly prototype of which the earthly tabernacle is a replica. Now, what's going on here? That's another one of those great themes that you'll hear people talk about and not really develop. When I taught through Hebrews, I did not develop it very much. I did a lot on the tabernacle before, but not the heavenly tabernacle. So this reminds us of the quote from the uh, book I read that the key uh, issue, one of the key things we have to understand is that theology and worship are inextricably tied to the question, who is God? All of this relates to that center point. When we take, um, when we go into the heavenly temple in Revelation 4 and 5, the centerpiece is the throne of God. That's the centerpiece of and the focal point of all angelic worship, which becomes the prototype for all creaturely worship. So we understand the majesty of God by looking at those uh, those passages. So, first of all, we understand that the that uh, the centrality of understanding the majesty of God through His creation is fundamental to understanding the essence of humanity. If we want to know who we are, if you want to know who human beings are, the essence of humanity, you can't do it biblically unless you understand who God is. Why? Because we're in the image and likeness of God. So to understand God, even though he is infinite and to a large degree beyond our comprehension, we can understand things about him in terms of what theologians call communicable attributes. That is, the attributes of God that he shares with man as his, as his image. So we have to understand who God is. That's, that's going to be the focal point. That's the emphasis in Genesis 1, 27 to 28, that God created man in his own image. Verse 27 In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. So there's no distinction between men and women in terms of their humanity as a reflection, an image, in the image and likeness of God. This is why in the Psalms, and I read Psalm 8 the last time, that the psalmist asked this question rhetorically in verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels who are not in the image and likeness of God. But in terms of the hierarchy at this point, we're lower than the angels, but we have been crowned with glory and honor because we're in the image and likeness of God. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands and you've put all things under his feet. That did not apply to the angels. We're created to rule. So that's that king aspect. But we're also created to be priestly servants. When Genesis uh, 2.15 says that God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to serve and to watch over it. Those words, as I pointed out last time, are words that are often used uh, 
uh, throughout Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy to express the function, the role of the priests. So Adam and Eve are put in the Garden of Eden, which is the inner sanctum of the earth at that time. There's three areas on the earth. There's the whole earth. Then there's a very special area called Eden. And then there's a third area that is called the garden that is east of Eden. This is the sanctuary of God, which is ruled over by priest kings. They are to rule. That's the kingly function. They are to serve and to watch, which are words used of a priestly function. You see them used together in Deuteronomy 13.4 in relation to Israel. Israel was called to be what, according to Exodus 19? To be a kingdom of priests. You are, and their responsibilities was to walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments. That's the same word used for tending over in uh, Genesis 2.15. Keep his commandments or watch his commandments, watch over his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. Those same ideas are present when we get to the new heavens and new earth, as I pointed out last time, that we're, to, we're going to rule and we're going to serve him. We are destined to be priest kings. And there's no temple because the hulk of the new creation is the temple of God. Now, as we wrap up, here's what we're going to look at. In Eden, and you can't tell it from this picture, but notice it's very light. It is a depiction of the Garden of Eden when God is present with Adam and Eve. You have these three areas I talked about. You have the earth, you have Eden, and then you have the Garden of Eden, which is east of Eden. That's the sanctuary. That's the innermost area where Adam and Eve are placed. And then God comes and walks with them in the garden. After the fall... See, you have a shift. Notice how light the picture is in the upper left. There's a picture. It's much darker. The fall has come. Now you have the earth, but that is where Adam and Eve are cast into. They're now outside of the garden. They're outside of Eden. What is separating them from the garden? God places cherubim, the plural. There's an army of cherubs that surround Eden to prevent Adam and Eve from coming back in. Now, when you go to the tabernacle and the temple, what you see is a replica to remind them of what was lost and God's solution. You have the outer courtyard where everyone can be. That is comparable to the earth in, at the time of creation. Then you have the holy place, which is divided into two areas, the holy place and the holy of holies. The holy place is comparable to Eden. The holy of holies is comparable to the Garden of Eden. What is erected in both the tabernacle and the temple to keep people from going into the holy place and the holy of holies? On the ceiling, there are these coverings of, of various uh, fabrics and leather. 
what is embroidered into the fabrics on the inside looking down. Nobody from the outside could see it, but if you're inside and you looked up, what would you see? The embroidery of the cherubim. If you go into the entry point here, the ve- there's, a, there's a gate here, an entryway, and there are cherubim that are woven into that. There are cherubim woven into the entry into the Holy of Holies and on the veil going into, I mean, the veil going into the Holy of Holies, Holy Place, and then the inner sanctum at the Holy of Holies, there are cherubs there. What is that to remind them of? Is that cherubs are there to protect the sanctuary of God just as God placed cherubs outside the Garden of Eden in order to prevent man from going as a sinner going back into the sanctuary of God and that the only way you can enter the sanctuary of God past the guards as it were is through a sacrifice and through the cleansing of sin and that's why when Jesus at Jesus' death, the veil is torn is because now there's cleansing and that way is open into the inner sanctum. And so here's another artist's depiction of this, that here you have the presence of God in Eden where there's a tree of life and tree of knowledge of good and evil and there's something comparable to both of those in the tabernacle. We'll talk about that next time. There's the flaming sword and these cherubs that block the entry into the garden. Here is a depiction of it in the uh, holy place and the holy of holies. You have the cherubs who are in the outer veil and the inner veil to represent that division so that man cannot go in past, past the cherubs. Now what we'll see next time is we're going to do a comparison of of these three. The Garden of Eden, you had the River of Life, you had cherubim, you had gold, precious gems, you had trees, the image of God, which is Adam and Eve, and a place of rest. You're going to have something comparable as a reminder in both the tabernacle and the temple, and all of this will become uh, focused in terms of worship. Now, the last thing I mentioned is that God, is God places, I ended with this last time, God places uh, Adam and Eve into the garden. And the word that is translated as placed there in verse 15, that he put him in the garden of Eden, is a word nuach. It's not the word that's used earlier, but it has this meaning of rest. It's related to the name of Noah. Noah is God is going to give man rest from the judgment in, in Noah. So it's a place of rest. This has great meaning for the for future and the future resolution of sin. Jesus uses this same terminology when he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's often used as a salvation verse, but it's not a salvation context. He's talking about disciples, believers who will become dependent upon Jesus as their source of rest in life. This idea gets picked up and developed in Hebrews 
where the writer of Hebrews talking about the Sabbath rest for the uh, Hebrew, for the uh, Exodus generation, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also arrested, has also rested, somehow I got the superscripts in there, has also rested from his works as God did from his. See, God rests on the third day, but that de- on the seventh day, but that doesn't mean he stops. It is, he's, it's a relaxation that becomes a pattern for the completed process. The millennial kingdom becomes that rest for us. And ultimately in the new heavens and new earth, as the millennial kingdom, and then I think in the new heavens and new earth, but I think this passage is talking about the, the millennial kingdom. Psalm 132, 13, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. That's the same word for rest. This connects all the dots. And when Adam is placed and Eve are placed in the garden as a place of rest, this is when they can worship God by keeping his commandments and walking with him. So this is where we have rest is when we are worshiping God biblically and it comes in our response to the proclamation, the teaching, the instruction of God's word. So that gives us a whole, a a much fuller understanding of this. And then next time we'll come back and start and just try to summarize the Old Testament, fill out that chart with the comparison and see how all of these things develop and set the stage for a New Testament spirituality. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to uh, reflect upon these patterns in your word that you have set up for a very specific purpose in order to teach us about who you are and about how we are to respond to you and to worship you. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, be more conscious and conscientious about the fact that our whole life is to serve you, and therefore it is an act of worship to you. And as many times as you fail, you have all as we fail, you always provide a way for us to recover and to keep moving forward, growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that we can begin to approach an understanding of what it means to really truly glorify you in our lives and that this is not something superficial it's not something that is just reflected in trite sayings but it is uh, it is a bedrock reality in our souls that only come through years of spiritual growth and we pray this in Christ's name amen